Take your Bibles, if you would, please. Turn with me to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, chapter 14, as we've been working through the Gospel of John, chapter 14, and what has been called at times the upper room discourses, uh, each communion service since uh, January, and we'll spill over into this new year, tying this passage of Scripture together with our study in Galatians and the important emphasis on the gospel uh, through Paul and Galatians and the gospel, even here in this text, as Christ prepares His disciples for the week that would soon come to pass, where He would be put on a cross, where He would die, where He would be placed in a buried tomb, only to raise again the third day, the very things that we've sung about this morning underlying the importance of the gospel, reminding the disciples of what their call and challenge would be after He is gone. They were to go and and take that gospel to a lost and dying world. But in the text as well, we are reminded of some deep theology that reminds us that the gospel and our hope is in Christ alone. That's a critically important word, in Christ alone. We sang about grace, by grace alone and through faith, through faith alone. We have to get that gospel right. The gospel has never been about giving you your best life now. The gospel has never been about fixing all your problems. The gospel has never been about satisfying your life and demands. It has always been you were dead in your trespasses and sin, but because of that gospel, you are now alive unto Jesus Christ to the glory of God alone. Are you thankful for that this morning? That's why we come to the table. We need to remind ourselves of that. The world is filled with distractions, and the world is filled with the compromise of the gospel in so many evangelical places today. We have got to get the gospel Right. So, as we come to this table, we come to a passage of Scripture in verse 7 of John chapter 14 through verse 14 that I will read for you this morning. If you had known me, Jesus says, you would have known my Father also, and from now on you do know Him and have seen Him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does His works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. For truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. The Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Father, I pray that you encourage us with these words, I pray, that you would caution us with these words, I pray that we would cling to these words and understand its significance and its particular importance for this morning's message out of John chapter 14. 
But again, we would ask that you'd remind us that our salvation is in Christ alone, through grace alone, by faith alone, for the glory of God alone. And the details of that gospel are recorded for us in the pages of the book. And that book is inspired and inerrant, and the truth therein will set us free, and we shall be free indeed. As the disciples were grappling with this reality, as they had in their minds something different that would soon come to pass, and as Christ continues to teach and instruct and prepare, I pray that you give us ears to hear as He speaks to these disciples. May the Word also speak to us and encourage us in the gospel of grace in Christ alone. So encourage us and bless us, and even, if you would, Father, remind us as we gather at this table of the importance of getting the gospel right, the assurance of that gospel coming in Christ alone, and the promise of that gospel that we will observe and remember until you come again, and we pray even so, come, Lord Jesus. So as we worship in spirit and in truth, and the Word and at the table, remind us of these critical elements of the gospel, and may it be for your glory alone, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We began this study in the beginning of chapter 13 in this upper room discourse, where Jesus is washing His disciples' feet, and He comes to Peter, and Peter says, nope, not me. Peter failed to understand the significance of what was taking place in front of him. This servant, Jesus, was not there to wash feet. He was there to to give his life as a ransom for many and to teach and instruct in, in humility and in service and a reminder that it's in Christ alone. And if our Savior can serve, we can serve in a greater capacity. He addresses that a little bit later on. But he makes a stern warning in John chapter 13 that not all of you are clean. Even those reclined at the table who knew him best, not all of you are clean. And we pointed out, of course, that was Judas Iscariot. But isn't it scary to know that these men that spent such great time with the Savior and heard his teachings and watched his miracles, even amongst them, not everyone understood or grasped the gospel that he was bringing the gospel of repentance that was in Christ alone. We remark that even in John chapter 13, all of the disciples turned and whispered to each other, is it me? Some of us think that that is a doubtful kind of thing, and and we should erase it from the Scriptures. Listen carefully to me. I think that's a wise thing to do from time to time. Do I know Him? Have I rested in His gospel alone? Have I added something to it? Do I really understand the implications of that? I'm not asking you to doubt your salvation. I'm asking you to be sure of your salvation. And John tells us, First John, how we can be sure by believing in Christ alone, that you may know that you have eternal life, and this life is in His Son. All of us can get distracted. All of us can can kind of filter out there and add some things that should never be added to the gospel. And we did that in fundamentalism and evangelicalism. We're doing it in other areas today. There is one gospel, as Paul says in Galatians, not another gospel, and that gospel is all about Jesus 
Christ. And he's trying to communicate that to those gathered at this table. So Peter in his boldness said, all right, wash every part of me. And Jesus said, no, the feet is sufficient. And Peter says, okay, Jesus, I will lay down my life for you. You understand the works nature of that statement? Peter said, I will do this for you. He missed the gospel entirely. No, Jesus says, wait a second. No, no, I've come down to lay my life down for you and give my life as a ransom for many. It's easy to get the gospel wrong, that somehow we're doing this for Jesus when the reality is we've done nothing, but Jesus Christ has done everything, including sealing you with the mark of the Holy Spirit so that one day we will all stand in His presence through the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. In John chapter 14, Jesus is encouraging them. He's trying to encourage them in the midst of some discouragement and trouble that had come into their hearts and minds, having heard some of the things that He was saying about Peter's denial, Judas Iscariot's betrayal. And He says, listen, my father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, I wouldn't have told you. And you know the passage well, and Jesus declares himself the way, the truth, and the life, and makes his gospel exclusive. No one comes unto the Father except through me. Listen carefully. I know you want to be kind and nice to the world at large and say, well, maybe there's a few different paths. There is only one path to the Father, and it is through Jesus Christ the righteous. And a gospel, another gospel that points in a different direction at the exclusion of Christ or even at the blurring squishiness of who He was is not the gospel. It is a dangerous gospel on a wide road that leads to destruction, and there is a narrow gate and that gate is Christ alone. Thomas says, well, how can we know to where you're going? And it's Jesus gives them the exclusive gospel. He expounds a lot upon it a little bit further in the text that we're looking at today. Verse 7, if you have known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. We will see throughout the context of Scripture that evangelicalism has embraced some, some fundamentals of the gospel that are critically important to stay correct in our presentation and to stay true to the only gospel delivered to the saints once for all, that we are to protect and to preserve. That gospel is rooted in what we often call the fundamentals of the faith, not fundamentalism, the fundamentals of the faith. And those fundamentals of the faith are critically important. And one of those fundamentals is so clearly spoken in the burgeoning budding church in, in Acts chapter 4, neither is there salvation in anyone else. For there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. It is in Christ alone. So the question is, how can someone be righteous before God? How can someone embrace this gospel when, in fact, their whole life has been tainted by sin? They are totally depraved. Their mind is affected by sin. Their emotions are affected by sin. Their decisions are affected by sin. How can this be? It is a call of the gospel through Christ alone, not a call to a better life, but a call to address 
the sinful nature of man, and all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And did you notice how he addresses this? He doesn't give us a list of works. He doesn't say, die for me. He said, no, I'm dying for you. And if indeed you wish to know the path to eternal life, it comes through me. Those fundamentals of the faith have been defined differently throughout the church ages, sometimes five, sometimes six, sometimes seven, but our Constitution includes a number of fundamentals of the faith. First, the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture. The Bible is God-breathed. Every single word, every point of, of punctuation is delivered by godly men who were superintended by the Holy Spirit and recorded it for us till the ages to come that reveal the plan of God for salvation. And you can trust the Word. You must trust the Word. But today in evangelicalism, we're deconstructing that Word. We're saying, well, it really doesn't mean that. And, and now even this past weekend, there was this, this celebration in Atlanta of making room for all kinds of sinful people into the church so, so that they might feel welcome. All kinds of sinful people are, are in need of the gospel. The church is for God's people to gather together, not, not the sinful people to gather together to celebrate the gospel. And if we get them all in one room, you know what we ought to tell them? The gospel. And that demands that we start with the inspiration of Scripture. It is inerrant. It will not lead you astray. There was nothing wrong in it. There are no errors. It is the very Word of God. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word, and that Word records the essence of the gospel. And some of those things that it records for us are as follows. The deity of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead, Jesus in his flesh, fully God and fully man, to take away the sins of the world. That is built upon this foundation of the virgin birth of Christ. Jesus is sinless in his deity, but he is sinless in his humanity because he was conceived of the Holy Spirit, not of Adam. And Romans warns us that through the line and seed of Adam, sin has come across and to all people. And Jesus was spared that lineage, being conceived of the Holy Spirit in a virgin birth, so that even in his humanity, he was sinless. That's a critical doctrine, critically important to get the gospel right in a world that says there are no miracles, there is no supernatural. Well, if there are no miracles and no supernatural, God did not become man, nor was born of a virgin. And if that's the case, you don't have a gospel. And you are dead and your trespasses and sin. We talk about the fundamentals, including the blood atonement for Jesus Christ. We've talked prior about penal substitution. Jesus Christ took the penalty and the full wrath of God for your sins and for my sins and the, for the sins of all mankind upon himself, and he paid that penalty in full through his blood. He was the only one who could do it. 
because he was perfect in his deity, and he was perfect in his humanity, and without sin, thereby satisfying the Father's righteous demand. And he paid the penalty for our sin, penal substitution and and double imputation. Not only did he take our sin and its consequence from us and put it on himself on the cross of Calvary, he took his glorious righteousness and provided that to those who believe. Stop and think about this for a second. When you stand in the presence of your Savior someday, you don't have to stand there quivering thinking, am I going to make it? You will stand there clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and that's why you make it. Not your own righteousness according to the law, but the righteousness of Christ alone has secured you for eternity. Are you thankful for that? You better be. And if you're not, you go look in the air when you get home and finally realize that you have no chance if this is about your righteousness. No chance. But it's not. From the moment of salvation, you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ and sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. You are a child of the King. What a glorious message that is. It's rooted and grounded in this blood atonement and Him taking our sin and paying the penalty and granting us His righteousness, not because of works that we have done, but according to His mercy and His grace in Jesus Christ. And finally, Paul addresses this in numerous places, but particularly 1 Corinthians chapter 15, excuse me. We believe in the literal, physical, bodily resurrection of Christ. And if He did not raise from the dead, He wasn't victorious over sin, and you are still dead in your sin, and your faith is empty. But we serve a risen Savior. That's what separates us from many other denominations and religions today. We don't have cross icons with Jesus still on the cross because He's not there. He was there for a short time, and now He's seated at the right hand of the Father making intercession for the saints. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. My Savior's not on a cross. He is risen forevermore. That's a critical part of the gospel. So we embrace it, and we remind ourselves of Paul's teachings in Romans chapter 5, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. You can consider yourself in that company. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, but perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. Someone who's almost there, no. God showed His love for us in that while we were still sinners, dead in our trespass and sin, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall be saved by His life more than that. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We'll get to that in a minute. In these fundamentals of the faith, these critical components of the gospel must be addressed as we give out the good news. Otherwise, this gospel loses its content and its significance and its meaning. 
And while one doesn't need to understand all the depths of these these fundamentals to come to know Christ as Savior, these fundamentals must be spoken as God opens up people's eyes to see. There had to be a sinless sacrifice, and there was only one person who would meet the qualifications. It is the God-man, Christ Jesus, fully God and fully man. We, we, We have to talk about those. Yes, it was a blood atonement. Can you imagine the rejoicing for those in Israel who are, who are people of faith, knowing that they no longer had to go to these ritualistic sacrifices with, with shed blood? He shed His blood once, and that was sufficient for all mankind. He ushered in a new age for His glory through the penal substitution experienced on the cross. And again, You can't deny any of these fundamentals and still embrace a gospel because you've gutted it of its truth, and there is no other gospel. We wrestle with this sometimes. What doesn't the Bible say, whosoever will? Yep. And whosoever wills. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understands. There's none that seeketh after God. It is beyond your capacity to will, but God in His grace through His Son, Jesus Christ, takes the blinders off your eyes and, and reveals Himself to you that you might come to know Jesus as personal Lord and Savior. Changes everything. I remember the day it happened in my life. I couldn't begin to preach a message like this. I knew some of this stuff. In fact, I probably knew most of this stuff. That was a different age. I'm an old guy, right? We, everybody knew that stuff. Today, the gospel is more glorious every single day when I'm reminded you didn't do this. I found you on the road, and I rescued you through my blood. Are you thankful for that? Wow, what in the world? He did that for me. For you holdouts who say, no, I had a role in that, you better start studying the Scripture a little deeper. You didn't do any of it. And as you grow in grace and the knowledge of your Lord and Savior, you realize that not only did He do it for you, He opened your eyes to that truth, and He rescued you from your sin through the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. In verse 7, Jesus claims to be the Son of God. He claims to be God. When He would do this at prior times, the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders would go ballistic. They knew exactly what he was saying when he said, I and my Father are one. They knew exactly, and they would go ballistic, and they would incite this anger to try and destroy this Jesus, the Savior of the world. In this text in verses 7 through, through 11 in particular, Jesus is revealing Himself to be the Son of the living God, God in the flesh. We see it throughout His earthly and public ministry in the term, I am. It comes out of the book of Exodus where God reveals Himself to His people as the great I am. And now Jesus uses those same words to describe Himself to the people, I am. Make no mistake, those who studied the Scripture, the scribes and the Pharisees, knew exactly what He was saying. Do you? He is proclaiming to be God, equal with the Father a part of the triune God of the Scriptures, and He proclaims, I am the bread of life. 
I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And why is He the way? Because He is God in the flesh, making a way to reconcile sinful man with the righteousness of God. He says in chapter 13, the prior verses that we've studied, that He told the disciples that before it took place of His crucifixion and burial and resurrection so that they would believe that, that He was who He said He was, that He was the fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures, that, that He was the Messiah, the Christos. They mistakenly believed that He was here to set up a kingdom here now. They had missed some of the things that he said along the way. I find it really interesting that his enemies didn't miss a word of what he said, and they were angry. <laughs> it was the people who spent the most time that, that didn't quite grasp everything that was going on, almost in a… and maybe not, it's conjecture, but, but, but I almost sense that he is saddened a little bit when he says to Philip, how, how long have I been with you? How many times have I told you? I, 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 don't know, I don't know what else to do. You've seen the miracles. I've told you the truth. I, I, I don't understand how, how to make this more clear. By the way, this would become crystal clear, crystal clear to all of them and every one of them, save Judas, who departed from the faith, and John the Apostle, who would die in exile on Patmos. Every one of them was so convinced after the fact that it cost them their lives. They died proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and the fundamentals of the faith. He is revealing Himself to be deity. Look at verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in Me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of My own authority, but the Father who dwells in Me does His work. He's claiming the full deity of the Godhead in spite of the lack of understanding of His disciples. They are claiming that they need to see the Father. Show me somehow. And Jesus said, I've been showing you for the last three and a half years. You haven't seen it. Verse 9, again the expression, I, I, I don't know what else to do. What else can I say? How else do I respond when you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? We see that I am again there. Don't, don't you understand who I am? The Son of the living God, the Savior of the world, the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, the second person of the Godhead. Verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or else believe on account of the works themselves. Could I have done what I've done if the Father wasn't in me, if the Father wasn't working through me, if the Father wasn't declaring His glory through me? Could I have done what I have done? And He's reminding them of their past. That, that's a message in and of itself. And then He promises, verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. What kind of greater works? Greater to an extent. These disciples would take the world or, or take the gospel to the world at large, and it would go from Jerusalem 
into Judea and into the Samaria and then into the, the, the Roman Empire and, and spread like, like fire in the early church in the book of Acts as they took this out and would see the works of the Father rescuing the souls of men in Christ alone. And tied to that reality, He makes a promise, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, and the Father may be glorified in the Son. Be very careful that you don't take that out of context. Jesus is not a genie in a bottle that you rub when you want something or need something. That's not, not what he's saying here. I believe we can attach that statement directly to the Great Commission in Matthew 28 where he sends them out to preach and do these greater works and reminds them. What does he remind them of? All power and authority belongs to me. Not you. It belongs to me. He is saying, you will go out with the full authority of the Godhead to preach this gospel and bring in those who believe that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Just for a second, a little side note. As we look at this passage of Scripture, we are reminded in verses 13 and 14 that you've done nothing, nothing, nothing. For some who struggle with that reality, let me ask you this. Why is it that you go to the Father and plead for your unsaved friends and relatives? Because somewhere deep inside you know that only God can do this. You can't. Why is it that we pray for the unbelieving world? Because we know only God can move their heart, only God can open their eyes, and only through the Father and the power and authority in the Son can this gospel spread to the whole world. You see, you might be challenged by the notion of, of, of choosing and all, all of those deep doctrines of the faith, but deep down you know the reality or you wouldn't be asking God to save them. Somewhere you know that it's only God who does that. And you do nothing, 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 and they do nothing, nothing. Only God can do that. Please read the verses in context. And God does it through His Son, Jesus Christ. And that's the end. No, it's not the end. There's a consequence to belief. I want to read you a, a, a fairly lengthy section by Charles Spurgeon about the nature of the gospel and what we sometimes call fiducia, a gospel of change. Spurgeon writes, that is what it means to be saved, to have our old thoughts made into new ones, to have our old habits broken off and new habits given, to have our old sins pardoned and righteousness imputed, to have peace in the conscience, peace with man, peace with God, to have a spotless robe of imputed righteousness cast about our loins, and to have ourselves healed and cleansed. To be saved is to be rescued from the gulf of perdition, raised to the throne of heaven, delivered from the wrath to come and the thunders of an angry God, and liberated from the curse of sin, and made to feel the taste, the love, approval, and applause of Jehovah, our Father, and our friend. All of this Christ gives 
to sinners. Genuine saving faith is not an acknowledgement of the fundamentals, nor an experience that happens at some point in time in history. It is a wholesale faith that changes absolutely everything. In fact, as you look at the text, the very next verse in the next section, as our English Scriptures are divided, says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. For those of you who are saved, this changes everything today, everything. And if you truly understand and love me, you will keep my commandments. What does he mean by that, Pastor Jim? Which ones do I need to keep? What a dumb question. Which ones? This is the God of all of the universe who makes righteous demands on those who love Him. Here's the answer to which one of them, all of them. And this is the glory of the grace of God. You have no ability to keep any of them. It's the same grace that saved you. It's the grace that allows you to be obedient. And it's the grace that calls you to be obedient to death even for the sake of the cross. And the example is given by Christ Himself in Philippians. As Paul writes, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, very thing he was trying to show them in chapter 13, taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, listen to this, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. That's what he was calling these apostles to, death. And that's what they experienced, all but one. And he made it very clear in his example and in his word, that obedience has consequences. The obedience of our Savior brought glorious consequences. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is John chapter 14. That is the reality of what we study here. That is what these disciples needed to grasp. That's what you need to grasp. If we are going to get this gospel right. And when we do, Paul reminds us, therefore, if anyone is a Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The very thing Spurgeon speaks of, behold, the new has come. And all this is from God. You notice there's not a tag team approach to this. And all of this is a little bit of God and a little bit of you. No, that's not what he says. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. We weren't rushing to find him. He found us and brought us into a right relationship. And he gave to us the ministry of reconciliation, the message of the gospel. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, penal substitution and imputation, and trusting to us the message of reconciliation that will yield greater works than they saw in the earthly ministry of Jesus. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, making His appeal, and we, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness 
of God. Did they grasp it all at that point in time? No, but they would. Did you grasp all of this when you came to know Christ as Savior as He took the blinders off and He found you? No. But as you grow in grace and the knowledge, you're responsible to know it now. Why? So that we can get the gospel right as His ambassadors. We must get the gospel right. This is the message. This is the example. This is the glory of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. And I'll continue to preach this gospel to the day I die. And I'll continue to unfold the depths and the beauty and the wonder of this gospel, whether you understand it or not, because it's not my job to convince you. It's God's job to open your eyes. And and guess what? He always does according to the counsel of His will. So we speak the truth, and we take you deeper. And when we do, it changes everything. And if nothing else, perhaps it makes us just a little bit more like Isaiah before the throne of God. To consider what He's done for us causes us to unravel in His glory, to unravel in His presence and to be thankful for what He has done alone in Christ by grace through faith for the glory of the Father. Amen and amen. As we come to the table, that's exactly what we remember. There is only one gospel. We've been given this picture of the bread and the cup to represent that gospel until we see Him again. Oh, He's coming. Ready or not, He's coming. I don't know when. I hope it's sooner rather than later. Some of you are young. I hope He waits off. I got a lot of stuff to do. I get it. I was like that. The end of the day, here's the reality. He's going to come when He's ready. But I picture Him in heaven grabbing the arms of the throne as I look at this world and I think, as soon. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ that sets us free. May you be free. Indeed. I remind you of Paul's words to the churches of Philippi. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Thank you, Father, for this remembrance. In its simple beauty, remind us of the depths, the height, the breadth of your love in Christ Jesus. And embolden us to implore and to beg 
and to proclaim that truth to all, to the glory of our Father. You've been good to us. Now we, may we take faithfully that message of goodness to a lost and dying world, and may you save those to the uttermost whom you will, we pray. Bless us as we take this benevolent offering, each gift and giver. Give us wisdom as we distribute and encourage others with this offering, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.